Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all the great reviews on iTunes and all the feedback from everyone. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. I read all the feedback that I get and wanted to share one with you from iTunes. It is from Dr. Alex Ezra from Manhattan Sports Medicine in New York. He says, amazing info and something everyone in the profession needs to be listening to. So thank you, Dr. Ezra, and thanks again to everyone for listening. My goals for producing these research interviews are, one, to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research, two, to encourage collaboration of researchers, and three, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get on to the interview today with Jan Hartvigsen, DC PhD. I am really excited that in this interview we'll discuss topics such as how to build chiropractic's academic capacity, what is evidence-based practice, musculoskeletal health in the context of general health, and the chiropractic profession in the mainstream. Professor Hartvigsen is full professor and head of research at the Department of Sports Science and Clinical Biomechanics at the Faculty of Health, University of Southern Denmark. He is also leading the graduate program for physical activity and musculoskeletal health and is co-founder of the Center for Muscle and Joint Health. He has published 136 scientific publications, 67 just in the past five years, including 26 systematic reviews. 13 editorials and commentaries and 10 book chapters and commissioned reports. His H index is 26 and his work has received uh, 1,806 citations in the past five years. He is published as lead and senior author in leading general and musculoskeletal specialty journals such as BMJ, Spine, Pain, Osteoarthritis and Cartilage, and Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Jan Hartvigsen has given 104 keynotes or invited presentations at meetings and multidisciplinary conferences in the field of chiropractic, physiotherapy, back pain, and orthopedics. Noticeably, he has been invited to speak at the Forum for Research on Back Pain and Primary Care, World Congress on Low Back and Pelvic Pain Twice, World Federation of Chiropractic Biennial Conference four times, the Forum on Manual Medicine, the Nordic Converts on Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy, and Musculoskeletal Medicine. Dr. Hartvigsen, it is an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. I'm very glad to be here. Great. Well, let's dive in because we've got a, a lot of different stuff that we can talk about today. First question is, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Well, um I, I may disappoint you when I say that it was more or less by coincidence. I, uh, I come from a smaller town here in Denmark, and my, and my family was going to the local chiropractor whenever we had neck pain or back pain or headaches, and it 
he was very well respected in town and it seemed to me like uh, a comfortable job that I could do. And at the same time, I was young and wanted to travel. So this was before you could become a chiropractor here in Denmark. You had to go abroad. So I had the opportunity to both get a good education that could lead me to, as far as I could see, an interesting and fulfilling job. And I got to travel. So I chose to become a chiropractor. Well, that's really cool. And uh, that's not disappointing at all. That sounds uh, excellent. Now, you graduated from Palmer, and then you practiced for a period of time. Is that correct? Yes, I practiced as a chiropractor for 12 years, eight years uh, full-time uh, with my own practice in Copenhagen, and then four years uh, part-time while I did my PhD that I acquired in 2001. So a total of 12 years in practice. Wow, that's great. So can you tell us just a, a, a little bit about your practice, how, how it was oriented? Did you see uh, all different sorts of populations, or did you specialize it was what I would just call a general chiropractic practice. Um, saw people with mainly back and neck pain, headaches, um, different musculoskeletal disorders, uh, no specialization, just regular chiropractic. Okay. So why was it that you uh, pursued a PhD? Well, um, when I've been in practice for a couple of years, um, the University of Southern Denmark, where I'm now employed, um, began discussing whether they should um, start a chiropractic education. And the dean of the Faculty of Health did not know what, what really what chiropractors did and what, what, what the university was supposed to teach them. So I was invited to become part of a, an expert group, if you will, that could advise him and the faculty about how you set up a chiropractic education. And, and gradually, I, I worked my way into the university. And one day, you know, the dean said to me, listen, I, I think you could have a future here. But, but if you want a future here, you have to do a PhD. So in, in an odd way and other coincidence. Uh, so I said, OK, I'll do a PhD. And, and, and I, I completed that in 2001. Great. Can you tell us just a little bit about the PhD? What, what you studied? Yes, the, the, my, I have a PhD in epidemiology. I studied, uh, my, the title of my PhD was occupational factors and low back pain. And I looked at, uh, physical workplace exposures such as, such as heavy lifting, prolonged sitting and, um, and, and uh, risk for low back pain in using some of the very data rich registries. Uh, and databases we have here in Denmark, and I looked at psychosocial, the psychosocial work environment and how that affects the onset and development of uh, back pain. So uh, I published, I think, five papers as part of, part of my PhD, and uh, it was a very good experience because it allowed me to uh, be part of a multidisciplinary uh, research environment with many young researchers at the Department of Epidemiology. Uh, and it was really uh, an invaluable um, scientific education. And I also received invaluable mentorship from the professors there that had enabled me to move on in, in a, a fairly successful academic career afterwards. I would say very successful. Now, you have authored over 130 publications in the best peer-reviewed journals and have worked in that multidisciplinary environment. Today, we're going to discuss some really important issues in chiropractic 
such as chiropractic's academic capacity, what is evidence-based practice, musculoskeletal health in the context of general health, and chiropractic profession in the mainstream. In addition, we'll uh, discuss some of your own research. So let's get started because I know we've got a busy agenda. So we'll we'll start with what is evidence-based practice, Jan? Yeah, that I think that's a very good question because um, today um, I think all healthcare practitioners will say that they practice evidence-based, which of course cannot be true because there's a lot of variation in healthcare, even within the same country and within the same state. Now, evidence-based practice is not only about scientific studies. It's about integrating the latest and best evidence with your clinical experience to deliver the best possible care for individual patients. That That's my working definition, and I think that's pretty well aligned with how it's perceived in the field. Okay. How do uh, patient expectations or, or values fit into the mix as well? Is that is that something that's a part of evidence-based practice? I think it's a big part of evidence-based practice, and I think it will become an even bigger part of evidence-based practice in the future. The, the question is, of course, how is value measured? We have traditionally measured value using p-values or standardized indices of, of certain kinds, but increasingly we are starting to measure value uh, by asking the patients about their perceived value of the treatment they receive. And I think we'll see much more of that in, in the future. So so patient preferences and values are a big part of evidence-based practice, and I think it will become an even bigger part of it in the future. So if that's the case, then I'll just give you you know a scenario that uh, has happened to me many times in practice, and that would be someone coming in and they have a certain condition for which there's not a lot of empirical scientific evidence in the chiropractic literature for their condition, uh, but yet the the patient has uh, you know been to other practitioners and they say you know, I really want to try chiropractic. Uh, I, this is where I want to be. I, I don't really want to to take a bunch of drugs. Um, is how do we approach something like that where there's minimal empirical evidence in the literature, but yet the patient is requesting uh, our services? W- what do you think about situations like that? Because they, in my experience, they happen a lot. Yes. Um, well, I, I think we have to know uh, the literature quite well as a profession. And we have, to, we have to know whether there are treatments out there with good evidence, good safe treatments with, with evidence for effectiveness. And if those treatments are not treatments that chiropractors provide, uh, and in particular, if those treatments have been compared to treatments that chiropractors provide and proven to be superior. In my opinion, we have to talk to the patient and advise the patient about what would probably be best for them considering the evidence, even if those treatments would not be chiropractic treatment. Now, for many of the conditions that chiropractors treat, mainly back pain, neck pain, certain types of headaches, musculoskeletal disorders, I would say, fortunately for chiropractors, there is good evidence out there that what chiropractors do is of value to patients and can be effective for many of those disorders. So 
if patients prefer treatments that chiropractors deliver over other treatments, I think it's perfectly ethical to provide those treatments to patients, uh, given the, the the state of the evidence today. Now, that may change in the future, but, but that's how I see it today. Yeah, and, you know, considering that most people come to chiropractors for some kind of pain, whether it's headache or neck pain or back pain, it definitely seems uh, reasonable. And the guidelines uh, today uh, mostly include chiropractic, so uh, it, it, it definitely well, we seems... We have just completed uh, new national clinical guidelines for the management of uh, back pain low back pain in Denmark, and I was part of the expert group, and these guidelines were commissioned by the Danish Board of Health. And this was a multidisciplinary expert group consisting of chiropractors, physiotherapists, general practitioners, rheumatologists, orthopedic surgeons, occupational physicians, neurosurgeons, and really all the clinical professions that treat back pain patients. And, And we came up with 10 recommendations for management of acute and subacute low back pain. And uh, three of those related to medication, paracetamol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and opioids. And based on the evidence and the opinion of the group combined, we recommended against all of those three types of treatment. Now, we recommended four manual treatment being spy, being mobilization and manipulation. We recommended four supervised exercises. We recommended four patient education and four advising the patient to remain in their everyday life and maintain their and maybe even increase their physical activity and remain at work. And, and we recommended against routine uh, imaging of low back pain. Now, with those recommendations, I can only say that chiropractors are ideally placed to provide, in my opinion, evidence-based and guideline-recommended treatment for back pain patients. And this uh, was for both back pain without radiculopathy and for back pain with radiculopathy. Now, we are currently working on the neck pain guidelines, and I, I can't tell you what those recommendations will be, but certainly for back pain I think chiropractors are ideally placed to to deliver those treatments. And I really don't see many other professions being as well-placed as chiropractors to, to handle this problem. Wow. That's, that's really exciting. You know, one of the things that, that I encounter when I uh, speak to chiropractors or just uh, mingle with chiropractors is that, uh, well, I get the sense that they feel in the research area that we – have you know they have some sort of inferiority uh, that that you know chiropractors don't have research that's the perception that I get from many chiropractors but we we really have nothing to be ashamed of especially in the musculoskeletal field that's that's what I hear you saying yeah I, that has been one of the great consolations or a great comfort in my life being employed at, at a large faculty of health that includes a, a large medical school and a big university hospital where I, on a day-to-day basis, interact with researchers from many different disciplines, that, that chiropractors have really nothing to be ashamed of uh, when it comes to the research and the body of evidence uh, supporting the way they practice. That is, of course, if we talk about spinal pain problems, um, 
certain types of headaches, certain musculoskeletal disorders, and provided that the therapies they use are within um, the, uh, the boundaries of the, of the evidence available. But, but, but certainly uh, offering various types of manual treatment, uh, exercises, uh, education, uh, support, advice about remaining at work and remaining physically active, there's very good evidence that, that those are good approaches. And, and if you interact with academics from other medical specialties, you, you quickly learn that they don't have all the answers either. There are, there are many problems and large holes in the evidence. So, so in my opinion, chiropractors have nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, they, they should be fairly proud that they have a, a pretty good evidence base for, for what they're doing. If if they uh, if they're doing the kind of things I I talked about, sure, great. Well, let's get on to uh, uh, another uh, related area, and that is how do we build chiropractic's academic capacity, and what are some of the barriers that are holding us back at this point? I'll just start things off and uh, and say that you know we. I think we need to realize as a profession that no one is going to do our research for us. Uh, so we need to step up and, and invest in research and uh, maybe you can take it from there and then uh, we'll just chat back and forth about uh, this, this really important issue. Yes. Um, because that is a very important issue because the uh, research and, and academic capacity is really uh, to a large extent in society, the, the currency of a profession and what legitimizes a profession uh, in society. And, and I must say that the main body of research that, that has to do with the types of things that chiropractors do in their clinics uh, are not performed by chiropractors. Other professions are much more research active in the musculoskeletal area, even in the spinal area, compared to chiropractors. So I think chiropractors have to realize that, as you said, no one is going to do the research for them. It's absolutely necessary that chiropractors and chiropractic organizations around the world start to fund research, and not in a small way, in a very big way. It's absolutely necessary, and it will only become more necessary in the future, in my opinion. It's like if you look at a big company that does not have a research and development department. Um, we all know from business that such companies don't survive for long. Uh, it's necessary. We need to have a research and development department in chiropractic also to be part of modern evidence-based healthcare in the future. Exactly. Well, you know, when, uh, probably when you were going through your PhD, um, I'm sure of this. And, and when I was going through my PhD, you know, we'd get small stipends and maybe some funding from this organization or that. Uh, but many chiropractors, um, uh, that I've spoken to have pursued master's degrees and PhDs, you know, they end up trying to fund some of the smaller scale studies themselves. And, you know, they don't have a whole lot of money. They're, they're doing it because they essentially love chiropractic. They love research. They want to combine the two. Uh, 
how do we get it such that we have a culture or a system where we can actually make this happen without, you know, chiropractors uh, being, being poor and, uh, you know, just funding it all by themselves? It, it's not a sustainable model. I mean, you will have uh, more or less stupid individuals like uh, yourself and myself. Um, <laughs> but as a profession, it, it's, not, it's not sustainable and it's not viable. I think, I think there are a couple of things I'd like to mention here. First of all, I think chiropractors, when you talk to them about funding research, are very interested in potentially funding studies that they think are very important. Unfortunately, it can sometimes be difficult to get chiropractors to agree on what an important study is. Now, I, I tend to think that the individual study is not so important as long as the research that's done is done well and at a very high level. I think for the chiropractic profession, the challenge right now is building academic capacity in the profession rather than individual projects, that we need to, to develop a, an academic and research culture in the profession, which we don't have at the moment. And I think that uh, the educational institutions uh, have a big responsibility here in the way they recruit and select their faculty. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, employing faculty that have research capabilities, preferably PhDs, and understand research and understand how to integrate evidence and research uh, into the curriculum. That's not the case at very many chiropractic institutions. And also to make the explicit use of evidence and research very visible to the students so that young chiropractors are brought up with, with a culture of reading, interpreting, and implementing evidence. In a way, we, we should educate chiropractors to be critical consumers of research and curious about new research. Uh, I'm not sure if you look at chiropractic worldwide that that is what we're doing. Right. I, I, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, if we're going to make, you know, massive inroads uh, into the research culture, as you put it, then this is something that's going to take large investment and it's going to take time, isn't it? Yeah, that's an important point too. Research takes a long time. Now, when when I started in research here, and when we started with the chiropractic research program in Denmark, we had chiropractors call us after two weeks and say, "So, what did you find out?" Uh, and of course, we could we had hardly uh, you know <laughs> uh, figured out how to open the computer and much less how to work the software. Um, so over time, they stopped calling us. They had kind of given up on us. So, but after a couple of years, and maybe three to five to seven years, we started to call them and say, hey, this is what we found out. This is what's happening. This, this is what's new. Um, and and we, we started the Danish chiropractic education here at the university. And with that, um, a, a substantial investment in research, uh, in 1994, so that's some years ago, over 20 years ago, 
And we are now at a level where we publish uh, from my group alone around 50 international peer-reviewed papers a year. We educate one or two new PhDs every year. Um, and we have uh, more funding than we've ever had. Uh, and we have a very talented group of young researchers, I'm very excited to say, coming up now. So I can see that what we've built is a sustainable environment. But it's taken uh, two decades uh, to get to that point. And I think you need to, to see that long-term perspective from the, from the leadership in the profession and, and get the profession to buy into that vision. That, that this is not a quick fix, it's a long-term investment, but it's absolutely necessary if chiropractors want to stay relevant in a society where healthcare is only going to be more driven by evidence rather than less driven by evidence. You know, Jan, I was just thinking about traditional chiropractic ways of looking at things and oftentimes in chiropractic we look uh, to more of a wellness kind of lifestyle and if we applied the same thing to research we would be building a culture of research wouldn't we because what you're describing is at the present moment it's almost like we're dealing with you know a, an acute episode of pain or something like that we're we're trying to just put something out there um, not in a system systematic way, but rather, um, you know, we need we need to build this from the ground up. Well, there's a very bright uh, American uh, chiropractor PhD, Cheryl Hawk, whom you may know, and she once said, and I've never forgotten this, forgotten this, that yes. the purpose of research is not to prove chiropractic; it is to improve chiropractic. That's what we want to do, because with with research and research results, uh, you kind of put your beliefs and your way of doing things on the line and you test it. And things may turn out differently than you expected to. But if the research is well done and credible, you actually get specific answers to scientific questions. And you may have and very likely will have to adjust the way you practice and see patients. So it's important to realize that being in a research culture is a dynamic culture and it's a dynamic mindset and dynamic framework. And that's what I think is exciting because tomorrow is not going to be like today. And I think that's a good thing because that's what we observe in other areas of society, that things evolve and change. So I don't understand chiropractors who say, we should not do research because we want things to stay the same. And preferably, we want them to stay the way they were in 1895. Yes, I've, I've heard that as well. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, there was one thing I wanted to just follow up on. And you mentioned that, you know, chiropractors, when you were first starting the research program, chiropractors were calling you after two weeks and asking you where the data was. Um, I, my suspicion is, you know, once once we build these connections and we develop career opportunities for chiropractors in the field, uh, chiropractors going through chiropractic colleges and universities will will get the idea that you know this is going to take time, and, and I think uh, 
some of that stuff will correct, uh, you know, once uh, once we get into it. So, but you're right; it's it's a really important uh, topic area. So I'm glad we uh, took some time to discuss that. And, and something that is related is, go ahead. Well, there was another thing I would like to touch upon in this, and that is that I was talking about the the chiropractic educational institutions and their responsibility in research. It's not their responsibility alone, but it's their responsibility to to bring up and educate what I said, critical consumers of research. But doing good research, and I, 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 I'm acutely aware of that every day at my work here at the university, really requires many different competencies. And I, I think you probably realized that in, in your research and academic career also. It's um, it's a multidisciplinary game. It's not it's not one researcher in his own lab doing his own thing and being a lonely genius. It's group work. It's a group effort to do good research, and you need people with different skills and competencies. So, if chiropractors really want to develop uh, a research tradition, one of the things they have to do also is integrate and work closely with other professions. Um, That means, of course, that you cannot always have it your way. That's what it means to work together, that that, that you have to discuss and weigh the arguments and come come forward to to the best possible solution. Um, So, but, but, but if you do that, the research you do is, is, has much higher impact and has a much higher quality and can be published in much better journals, are taken in by guidelines, and you have much more influence than if you, compared to if you function in a monoprofessional silo, if you will. Yeah, great, great points. And that is a perfect uh, transition into our next topic, which is the chiropractic profession in the mainstream. So we see, you know, most reports are saying that we see somewhere less than 10% of the population. I think the highest uh, was in the early 1990s. The highest estimate was 9 point something percent of the population. But uh, I think uh, lately it's down around the 7.5% range. So if we want to see more people, where do we need to go, Jan? Ah, that's a... Uh... That's a good question. I think that um, chiropractors are, are should take a close look at themselves, and I say that being one, and think about how can they become more relevant in society by helping societies with some of the big challenges. And certainly, um, musculoskeletal problems uh, is one of the very large societal challenges today. But maybe what many chiropractors do um, is not relevant for the majority of musculoskeletal patients. And maybe what chiropractors do is not what society is looking for. 
So we end up with the 10% that more or less self-select to go to chiropractors. So we know from many studies now that chiropractors see patients that are on average better functioning, better educated, and have more money than people with similar conditions that do not go to chiropractors. Patients that chiropractors see have fewer comorbidities and, and have better physical and mental function. Uh, so if we want to see more patients, what, what do we need to do to become more relevant to people who are less affluent, not as good educated, have worse physical functioning, worse health, and are in lower social groups where these conditions are actually more impactful, if you will, potentially, than in the population chiropractors see today. I think those are some of the issues we need to discuss. Um, many chiropractors are focused very much on manual treatment and spinal manipulation. And it's certainly a good treatment that we discussed how it's it, it has a fairly good evidence base. It's recommended in many guidelines. So it, it, it's, a, it's a good treatment. But for some of the problems that I outline here, it may not be enough. And that's why uh, chiropractors don't see more patients, I think. And lastly, I would say, we should, of course, not underestimate that in many societies and areas, there is a professional bias against chiropractors. And some other health professions are advising patients not to see chiropractors. And that is, um, uh, in many instances, uh, based on, in my opinion, false impressions and false beliefs about what chiropractors do and the safety of chiropractic and various other things. Um, but, but then again, that, that just speaks to integration and, and dialogue with, with the with the non-chiropractic world. That was a long answer. I hope it made sense. It absolutely made sense. And <clears throat> I wanted to follow up uh, with a couple of other points. Uh, one is that well, we know people just considering low back pain alone, <clears throat> I mean, that is the, uh, the uh, leading cause of disability in the world today. Mm -hmm. And so just looking at one musculoskeletal issue, I mean, from that, we, you know, and given the guidelines, it, it seems like we should be seeing more just, just for low back pain itself. I mean, I'm not even talking headaches or neck pain or wellness or sports or whatever, you know, chiropractors uh, do. That's just one small piece to the puzzle. Uh, another thing is that getting back to the comorbidities, I think this, uh, in my opinion, is a really untapped area. I've seen some research come out uh, about some of these comorbidities. For example, here in the United States, there was a paper that came out in 2016 that looked at the cost of chiropractic care for people with back pain with multiple comorbidities. And the cost effectiveness was seemed to be better or favored the chiropractor compared to, uh, to medicine. Um, so I, I'd love to see more research on that because I think that's where people are at. They don't just have back pain. They've, they've got life issues. They've got other things going on. And, uh, wow, I mean, I just think it's a great way to uh, to get to the next phase of some of our research. But 
Yeah, but it's, it, it's, it does, uh, of course, require that the chiropractor wants to be part of the team. Um, and I think I mentioned before, being part of the team often means that you cannot have it your way always. Uh, and working together means compromising and adapting and, and changing. But I agree with you that the rewards are great. And I, I think if chiropractors want to see more than 10% of the population, they, they need to integrate more and, um, and be willing to listen to what people in society, decision makers and other healthcare professions say and try to adapt to that um, instead of uh, sticking with, um, uh, what can you say, uh, uh, a traditional belief that uh, if you see a chiropractor, then all will be well. Because for, 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 for some patients, and in fact, probably for most patients, that, that's not true. For some patients, it is true, of course, and those are the 10% that chiropractors see. But for many other patients, that, that's just not enough what chiropractors are offering right now. Sure. And, you know, <clears throat> looking at what most people come in for is pain. And pain is, a, well, frankly, it's a part of life. I mean, it, it comes and sometimes it comes back. That's, you know, whether they see a chiropractor or not. That's, that's, one of the, that's one of the new things I think we realized in the past five to ten years is that uh, back pain, if you look at low back pain, uh, take the case of that, it's, it, it, for many people, it's not something that you cure. It's something that is recurrent and chronic. Um, very good practice-based studies have shown that people who present themselves to family physicians with back pain, if they are followed for one year, 60% will have persistent pain or have had new episodes of pain over that one year. Um, now, many chiropractors uh, communicate to their patients that I will fix your back. Uh, and there's the old Clarence Gonstead saying that find it, fix it, and leave it alone. I think that's stupid uh, to say that given <laughs> the evidence we have today. Instead, we should be telling our patients, now you have back pain. In, in many people like you, that is a chronic and recurrent condition, just like if you have migraine headaches or asthma or other chronic recurrent conditions. So more likely than not, this will not be your last episode of back pain, but I can help you with this episode of back pain and I can give you advice about how to live your life in spite of back pain. And I can give you tools that you can use when you get back pain that maybe can help you um, uh, prevent or at least uh, postpone future episodes of back pain. Um, so communicating to patients in a more chronic disease framework rather than a find it, fix it, and leave it alone framework. I think that will help um, uh, the way chiropractors are perceived by patients and the public, because regardless of what the chiropractor says that he has fixed the back, many patients will get the new episodes of pain. 
Well, yeah, and that is so critical because, I mean, just as far as practice management goes, uh, I mean, if you tell someone, oh, yeah, you know, you're, you're good, uh, you fixed it. I don't know too many chiropractors that actually would say that nowadays, but uh, perhaps. And so if if they, you know, explained it the way that we're talking about it now, you know, like Mrs. Jones, uh, the, the pain is likely to come back at some point, but here are some strategies that you can use to, to try to mitigate it, try to prevent you know, improve the fitness of your spine, eat well to control inflammation, you know, help out with, uh, you know, social networks and things like that that can help you. I mean, there are so many things that we know now that people can incorporate to to provide, you know, what I would consider the best care available that to say, you know, you know you're good, <laughs> Is uh, I think it's naive because we know pain. You know, we're just talking about pain at the moment. But mm-hmm. Pain can come back. And, uh, the patient says, "You know, okay, well, I guess I'm good." And then they get an episode two, three, four weeks later. And what are they going to think? They think, well, the chiropractor didn't either explain things well, or they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah, the treatment didn't help. When in fact, it did help. <laughs> exactly, it did help. That's, and that's exactly the point. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up. I guess I, I should have said it a little bit better. But yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, um, this is really interesting. Let's let's get into... Now, let, me, let me just close this, uh, this little uh, topic by saying that, that there are some very interesting studies now that, that we are doing and, and some studies that are going on in Sweden that examines uh, chiropractors' role in this more... Uh, chronic disease care model. Um, so if you have diabetes, for instance, the, the big emphasis on management is on self-care. How can you live with your diabetes? What can you do to prevent the consequences of diabetes? But you need in diabetes, uh, at least that's how it is in my country, you are in regular contact with a physician um, that monitors your health and maybe takes your blood sugar or um, takes your blood pressure and, and looks up whether you are gaining weight or losing weight or at least maintaining your weight and those different things to keep you on track so you can better live your life with this condition. And I think there's a role for chiropractors in this chronic disease model paradigm. And, and we have some very interesting studies at the moment where we look at whether regular visits to chiropractors and, and other people are doing this too um, can, can help uh, people cope better with their back pain and prevent future episodes and and these things and and those studies have actually never been done even though many chiropractors like to tell their patients this so it's an other way that research can contribute to to practice we don't know what they're going to show but it's going to be very interesting yeah fantastic and you know the the things that chiropractors do other than adjust can make a big difference like you mentioned diabetes for example Nutrition can play a huge role. Exercise can play a huge role. Not only managing, but uh, in some cases, you know, bringing them back to a state where they maybe not need the uh, the medications or you know, whatever other treatments. And, and then I, and, and then I think that that the that there's one area where not only chiropractors but all uh, spine pain uh, doctors, if you will. Uh, 
uh, are not doing enough, and that's in relation to work disability prevention. Um, and really talking to patients about the benefits of remaining at work. Um, uh, part of the big impact of back pain and the, and the burden of disability from back pain comes from work disability. Uh, and not only in industrialized countries, but also in low and middle income countries. And we know that uh, people who don't work, even people with back pain who don't work, I just have a worse prognosis on a on a range of factors than people who remain at work. So, so that's one area that I, I think chiropractors can do, and and spine pain doctors in general can do much better. It's in relation to to the social consequences of of pain, and in particular work disability. Fantastic. So we've talked a lot about various aspects of the research and and chiropractors in the in the uh, research environment. How do we get this research out that we've developed? <clears throat> Yeah, I, that's a very good question and one I struggle with on a daily basis. <laughs> and I, I think we have to, um, I, I think researchers like myself uh, have to take a close look at ourselves and how we have been communicating. And, and frankly, I don't think we have been very good at it. Uh, I think there's been a tendency for chiropractors to, or for researchers to be, ah, uh, communicating a lot among themselves and communicating in a kind of esoteric language that most people don't understand, using a lot of statistical terminology and uh, a lot of p-values and fancy tests that even well-educated clinicians don't understand. So, so I think researchers have to take a look at themselves and, and how they communicate their findings. And I, I really see a change happening um, now with uh, social media and the way many researchers, even really top top researchers in many fields, are communicating more simply uh, in a way that both patients and clinicians can understand about what what's right, about what the evidence is, and what this means to to, to patients or for, for clinicians, what it means to their practice. And I also see an increasing use of what I would call uh, knowledge brokers. And that's people maybe with PhDs, but who are talent, talented communicators who have a role of chewing and translating the research and chewing it and spitting it out again in a way that people can, can, can understand. Uh, and maybe we need to do more of, of that to have people help researchers communicate better. I know many researchers and, and, and some are excellent communicators and some are, uh, to put it mildly, not excellent communicators. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so, so two points. I, I think researchers have to look at themselves and, 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 and try to become better at communicating and, and make that part of their job. And second, maybe we need some people to help the researchers who can also talk to the clinicians so the researchers can better understand what it is clinicians need to know in relation to individual projects or evidence in a, in a certain field. Yeah, very, very, very important points. And uh, I'm sure, you know, things are ramping up, it seems, with these knowledge brokers. Um, I guess I would consider myself uh, kind of a knowledge broker. I never really considered the term yeah. before, but 
doing these podcasts is just one way to get uh, some of this information out. So yeah, and, and really, I think I think I mean, social media and people can. I, I think an important point too is that it's not black and white. Even though we say something, there's good evidence for something. It, it's not. It, it's not black and white. It's not like if there's evidence that certain exercises can be beneficial for patients, and there's evidence that certain types of manual treatment can be effective for patients with a certain condition. It's not like like then all patients should have this treatment. It, it's not black and white, and and um, and researchers, I think, have a tendency to communicate in a way that's very black and white. It's either this way or it's that way, whereas in reality, it's it's much grayer. And, and the way clinicians should use evidence is to inform their practice, like we started out by, by talking about. And, and new research findings very rarely from individual studies at least, come in and, and, and change a field completely. It's uh, progress in science is incremental. So how does an individual study or a new research result fit into the greater picture? That is sometimes difficult for individual clinicians and, and certainly patients to understand. And dealing with this relativity and the total body of evidence is something and and how to communicate individual research projects in that context is something that that researchers should be very conscious of and and where i think knowledge brokers um, can be helpful perfect well we're getting closer to the end here i wanted to go through another couple of topics here quickly one is um area that you've dealt pretty extensively in that is musculoskeletal health in the context of general health so in your studies and, and just from your framework, what do you mean exactly about musculoskeletal health in the context of general health? Well, when I became a chiropractor in the 80s, um, we talked about musculoskeletal health very much from a biomechanical perspective. It was the way you sat on a chair, the way you lifted a box, or it was a sprain, and that's why you had this chronic pain. And more and more we understand now that back pain and musculoskeletal health occurs more in people who have other conditions also. They have more headache, asthma, heart disease, diabetes, uh, other health problems. Um, and these health conditions influence each other in different ways. So I think it has become much more interesting to be certainly a researcher, but also a spine pain clinicians, because you need to think of your patient as a patient and not just as a back pain patient. The impact of back pain is much greater in people who also have other health problems. Yes, and you know, I, I think these kinds of discussion points actually get into you know what many chiropractors uh, think of and what we're you know taught in the first years of chiropractic school, which are, you know, the spine and the brain obviously are in control neurologically for the rest of the body. And so if you work on spine, it's not just that you're going to get spine changes, but it's likely at least possible that you get changes elsewhere. Yeah. And, and maybe I, I think chiropractors um, sometimes are complicating it too much. Maybe it's, 
it's it, it's often a question of people are in pain and therefore they don't they're not physically active and because they're in pain they don't sleep well so if you help them with their pain all of a sudden they can start to exercise more all of a sudden they sleep better so they feel better they can concentrate better focus better and their overall health and well-being increases maybe maybe it's uh, it maybe I, I prefer that way of of thinking rather than in complex neurological mechanisms that are really at this point in my opinion quite speculative yeah well they there's certainly uh, many seminars at least over here in the United States that are that are quite speculative in that in that kind of model I think they're interesting but um, but but that's what they are uh, speculative uh, mainly mainly it's kind of a framework that could explain things if we could show that that's you know but it's so complex as you were saying before that it's difficult to, to get to some of those mechanisms now some of the um, issues and themes that you've developed in this musculoskeletal health in the context of general health I wonder if we could just uh, for a minute or so talk about uh, for example some of the work you've done in chest pain yeah and hip osteoarthritis for example not our traditional uh, chiropractic well, uh, if we take the chest pain um, area of research, I, I think it's a very good uh, example of how chiropractors, by interacting with cardiologists and specialties in, 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 in thoracic medicine, can all of a sudden become relevant through uh, research projects. Now, what we did in that area is that we we know that, that, that chiropractors see people with chest pain and, and some from time to time chiropractors have really good results, even miraculous, miraculous results in treating patients with chest pain with spinal manipulation. So we talked about this with the cardiologists and they, they said, yeah, we see that from time to time. It's anecdotal evidence. We really don't know what to make of it but uh, so because we don't know who these patients are. We don't know how to select them. We... We don't know who to send them to. So we said, well, why don't we do a couple of studies? And I think now we have published around 10 papers in the area. And we've actually developed a, a protocol where by we can uh, identify these patients. We have shown that um, if patients are picked uh, with what we call musculoskeletal chest pain, they are much less likely to have anything wrong with their heart. Uh, we have shown that these patients can be treated by chiropractors and that they improve greatly with this treatment. And we have shown that sending these patients to chiropractors is cost effective. So it, it more or less started as a, a conversation over lunch. And now, around 10 years later, has ended up with a whole line of research. And, and I, I think it's a good example of showing how chiropractors can become part of the team uh, filling a, for this subgroup of patients uh, potentially a very interesting role. So uh, it's one of the benefits of being in a, in a large uh, health or medical faculty that, that you have these opportunities to play with people from different specialties. And I, I can only encourage chiropractors to, to, uh, to seek out environments like that. It's very challenging. But at the end of the day, it's it's also very rewarding. Yeah, 
just anecdotally, I'll throw out a case that I had early in practice. That was probably two months into practice about 19 years ago. And this fellow walked in and he had this acute chest pain. And I didn't know what to do. I was two months into practice. I, you know, I palpated him, did an exam, and uh, I found a, a rib joint, a costo transverse joint that was, you know, I'm really stuck and subluxated. And uh, so I sent him to the ER to, because I didn't know what to do because he was having this acute chest pain. So he came back from the ER. They said, oh, you know, it's, everything's fine. And I said, well, I guess it's, it's not fine because you have a lot of pain, but uh, I guess it's not your heart. So I adjusted him and, uh, and it cleared up. But, uh, you know, we've, we've all had these kind of cases, but it's great that you are doing the research to uh, get the integration in there. It's, it's really fantastic stuff. To wrap up, this could take a while, but uh, let, let's see how we do with it. I at least want to ask the question. There are some really hot topics going on these days, Dr. Hartvigson. Uh, I'm sure you're aware, for example, of the situation right now in, in Australia. We're having a hard time um, with pediatric chiropractic care. It seems that uh, various professions are coming down on seeing children in Australia. What's your take on What's going on right right now? Yeah, well, I uh, I've been fortunate in the past year to spend uh, about a month in Australia, and I can see that chiropractors in Australia are under a lot of pressure, the the profession as a whole. Um, now, part of it is, in my opinion, um, the professional bias. I think I I mentioned before that uh, there's a there's a turf war going on between different professions and it's a question of market share and um, so it has nothing to do with evidence or science it's politics that that that's that's part of it but i also think a big part of it is because chiropractors in australia appear i'm speaking as an outsider but appear not to be very united and have some fractions or groups in the chiropractic professions who really make claims about health in general and about what chiropractic can do for people that are completely out of line with common sense and with what we know from evidence. So by having these groups in the profession, the chiropractic profession becomes very, very vulnerable. And in a situation where you have two or three or maybe four different associations that are, cannot get along, it's very, very difficult. My, my, my advice for chiropractors in Australia is to, to, to have good educational institutions, to invest in research and academic credibility, and also to, to integrate with other healthcare professions, just like we talked about what we've done here in Denmark, what I see in some other countries, and also to be in it for the long haul. This is not something that's going to go away tomorrow, but it can be changed uh, over time. Yeah, great, great, uh, great perspective. Now, one of the goals of the podcast is to try to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. We've already touched upon some of this, but can you offer any uh, any advice to aspiring chiropractors that may wish to pursue PhDs? 
Well, I'd like to say that if you want to to become a researcher and have an academic career, it, it's a lot of hard work. And you know that, Dean. It's not easy, but it's very, very satisfying. And it's, it's great fun because you really learn and you grow not only uh, not only academically, but but also as a human being, because you, you you get these insights through research that are very very satisfying. So I, I find it very satisfying to to be a researcher. I think it is the most important piece of advice I can give is to find a good mentor or a good group research group and become part of that um, so that you so that you don't struggle on your own so you are part of a team where you help each other and i think that's much more important than the project you do to be part of a good mentoring group uh, that that's more important than, than 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 doing the project you love if they have priorities that are somewhat aligned with what you do uh, I would change my priorities and become part of such a group if you can see that they are productive and it's a good working environment and that they have uh, ambition and, and the ambition to do the best research possible. Because I, I, I think for young chiropractors and any young researcher that, that, that are starting out in research, uh, it's about becoming a good researcher. Uh, that, that's your objective, about learning rather than doing an individual project that you think will change the world, because then you'll probably be very disappointed because very few projects do change the world. But um, it's, it's like the investment that the profession needs to make in, in research and, 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 and building academic capacity. You, you need to build yourself an academic capacity in yourself. And, and that should be your, your, your objective as a young researcher, in my opinion. You know, that, that was very well said. And I agree with everything that you said especially developing the skill. You may not work on the project that you, you know, had in your dreams right away, but it's about building skill level and your expertise and working with you know, the best people that you can. That's true. Yeah, I, I, concluding? I can maybe, uh, we started out, you, by, you started out by asking about my own PhD. I, I wanted to do a randomized clinical trial. I wanted to prove chiropractic. Now, it turned out that wasn't possible at the time within the topic I wanted to do it within. So I was offered a PhD project in epidemiology, looking at, as I told you, workplace exposures as risk factors for back pain. Uh, and I, I did it because that's what I could get at the time. But it was incredibly fortunate for me because I ended up in exactly such an environment with good mentors, with good stimulation, where quality and skill was what was important. Uh, so if I had had my way and done a randomized clinical trial on my own, I may have completed the trial, but I would not have been able to hold the job and have the career that I've had today. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Any concluding remarks? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. It's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope that uh, this is useful for some of the listeners. I know it will be useful, and I, I really appreciate your time and coming on, and it was, a, it was an amazing conversation. So thanks very much. Thank you.